First off, I'd like to start by thanking each and every one of you who is taking time out of your day to sit and listen to my very first episode of the Mission Possible Life podcast. My name is Jeremy Poole, and I'm your host. Who am I? I am a father. I'm a husband. I'm a friend. I'm a life coach. I'm a motivational speaker. And most of all, I would like to think of myself as somebody that continues to believe in the human spirit and the connection that exists between each and every one of us. What is the Mission Possible Life podcast? The Mission Possible Life podcast is a place for you to hear stories, get inspired, to engage, take ownership, and a level of self-accountability to start your very own healing process. See, pain is universal. We try to make it unique to what we are going through. But I can promise you're not the first person going through what you're going through. and You definitely will not be the person that puts the period at the end of it. So the Mission Possible Life podcast is a place to give you tips, the things that I've seen over the years, as well as to bring the people that I've worked with personally, as well as people that have inspired me personally to help them share their stories of inspiration, experience, strength and hope. So what are we doing on this very first episode? Well, I thought there would be no other place than to share my personal story of healing. And if you vibe with what I'm talking about, if this connects with you, I ask that you sit and wait for episode number two, where I will have one of my dear friends who's been on this road and this path with me. But let's start with the things that I went through. See, I'm somebody that struggled severely with addiction, criminality and what it means to be biracial in a country that doesn't always feel like it accepts you because they're still dealing with a lot of racism, bigotry, and hatred. What I've learned in my process is that bigotry and hatred is not an intrinsic value. Bigotry and hatred is actually taught to us. That is a legacy that many of these individuals that look through this perspective have been given to them and still operate within. It is my personal feeling that each and every one of us is born into a legacy. See, that's the place where your parents and the situations they've been through, the walks, their experiences is given to you. Some legacies are enriched and others are filled with trauma, stories of affliction, stories of abuse. I can honestly say that my legacy in early age, outside of being biracial, was a story of inspiration, was a story of normalcy. What is normal? In all reality, normal is just a washing machine setting. So I don't really truly know what normal is, but I can say my narrative up until a tragedy that happened in my family, I felt as if everything was okay. See, I'm the son of Gerald Poole, who is an immigrant in this country. He came here in his late 40s and started a family with my mother, who was in her early 20s. This is one of the things that was unconscious at the time. But what was conscious is that many families weren't mixed families like like mine. My father, he's black, he's Chinese, and he's indigenous from South America, Arawak Indian. 
My mother, she's Italian. And growing up, my family connection was something very, very tight because we didn't truly have extended family. My grandmother on my mother's side was in and out, but she was dealing with her own level of addiction and struggles and mental health issues. And my 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 grandparents on my father's side, they passed away when he was young. My father did one thing throughout my entire life was instill the importance of what family means and how to show up for our family. But one of my earliest memories that I had to do a lot of work around was my three-year-old self remembering the cops being called. See, my father was a hard worker in his country. He was uh, a ginger... In his country, he was always in in a general management uh, position as somebody that worked in production. So we were always, we always had a house. I didn't come from extreme levels of poverty. I didn't really know what it meant to be disenfranchised, but I can say that having a house, we were the people that were house poor. We didn't live the same way that everyone lived. And this wasn't in my early childhood. But this memory that I'm talking about was a distinct memory of racism. See, my my mother and my father were married just 20 years outside of interracial marriage being legal in this country. And I'm not talking about 100 years ago. I'm really talking about the 1980s. But this memory that, that built this narrative that I lived with unconsciously from, for a long time was an experience where the police were called to our house. My mother and my father were in an argument. The cops ended up coming. And the cops really abused and accosted my mother for the individual that she continues to love to this day. See, my mom got the third degree of that exchange because some white officers came to our household and couldn't understand why this white woman was married to somebody in this country would be considered black. My father, still to this day, he honors many more parts of his culture, even though black, to me, is something that I honor more culturally, but it's not something I am. Black is a color. Culture comes from the people that instilled these values inside my father. The legacy that my father was given was given to him him through his culture. So this is something that I, I carried with me for a long time. Again, unconsciously, childhood was something that felt normal. The way that I connected with my father, he loved sports. He always told me if he came to this country and lived here, if he was an American, he would have played professional baseball. So sports was something that was always on the TV. My father watched basketball, he watched soccer, he watched baseball, and he watched football. I'm a child of the Showtime era 49ers, the Showtime Lakers, uh, and watching Dodger baseball when, when I was younger. Not too fond of it personally, myself, of, of baseball. I, I love my team, but it was something that I'm an ath- I was always an athlete, so the sports that I connected with were the sports that I played. 
One of my fondest memories as a child was my father being my coach for my soccer team. This is something that pushed me in the direction to excel and try to be excellent in that sport. And for a very long time, I was. I was somebody that traveled all through California, all up and down the, the state playing soccer with my, my, my teams that I grew up with. And it wouldn't be until later that I really shed the layers of what it meant to be an athlete because my household needed went in a different direction. See, at 11 years, I was about 10 years old. My older brother was 11 years old. There was a family tragedy. My older brother was at school. He slipped and fell on some slick concrete on the campus, and he broke his hip. At the time of him breaking his hip, his teacher made two other students pick him up and take him to the nurse's office. When the nurse called my mother, my mother came to the school, and my mother really knew something was wrong. My brother is darker complexion, and when she got there, he was white as a ghost. Um, so my mom got into it with the nurse. The nurse at the time did not want to call the ambulance. They didn't want to be responsible for the situation. They wanted my mom to drive him. But my mother knew she couldn't deal with the situation alone. She got a little aggressive, told the nurse, if you don't go over there, I'll reach over this cord, reach over the desk, put the cord around your neck type situation. And eventually the ambulance was called. While we were living in a town called Palmdale, California at the time, which didn't have the best medical facilities, they took my older brother to a facility, a hospital nearby. When they got there, they realized this was out of their control. And then they shipped my brother off to Children's Hospital of LA. During surgery, this is where a mistake was made and my brother became permanently handicapped with a drop foot. So he can't pick his foot up front. He, he doesn't have the hinge at the bottom of his foot. At this time in my life, it was something that rattled and shook the family. My parents and the information at that time wasn't passed along and wasn't as readily available as it is today in today's day and age with smartphones and really supercomputers in our pockets. So at the time we were had a lapse of insurance um, and the medical bills were outrageous. My dad had to deplete his 401k, which ended up creating, you know, another burden in our household. At the time, I didn't realize what was going on. It wasn't until I became an adult that I was able to have these conversations with my mother and my father, mainly my mother, because she was something that's always been extremely open. The reason I care and believe in the human spirit the way that I do, the reason I live with the level of compassion in my heart is because I've always seen my mother do so. My mother is somebody that tried to help make somebody's day a little bit warmer if they were feeling cold. And that's the same thing that I try to do, the same belief I have in the human spirit is just that. But at the time, my brother came home, he was bedridden for almost two years, had to learn how to walk again. And that was the time in my life that I made myself extremely small. I started to pick up the game of basketball and I connected with kids in school. I was always somebody that, that, it was easy to make friends. 
But the truth is, it was easy to make friends because I was never really myself. I was always someone willing to be what you needed me to be because that's the way that I felt the sense of love. I made myself extremely small in the household and I would seek the attention of anybody outside of my house. Every weekend I was gone. Every weekend I stayed at my friends' houses. Sometimes during the week I was staying at their houses. They were always checking on us because they knew what happened with the family or checking in on me and allowing me a little bits of those a little bit of that sense of love and connection that I was striving for. But also, I didn't feel like I deserved it at my house. This was something that pushed me in a direction of connection. And the truth about connection is, whether it's in the dark or the light, connection's connection. You know, we I was somebody that was so willing to do what you needed. And if we were suffering, we were all going to suffer together. So... What did I decide to do the very next year at that school that my brother got injured at? I decided to get jumped into a gang. I got jumped into this Hispanic gang at the time. And I was hanging around all of them. And, you know, a day or two, I'm chopping it up. And there's this very strong racial tone about blacks. And for me, I I was having none of it. I was like, my dad's black. What are you talking about? So two days later, I would get jumped out of that gang. But the thing that happened to me after getting jumped out of jumped in two days before and then jumped out two days later, I really got, you know, those things put on me. Like people really did a number on me. But what happened after the 30 seconds or so, the minute or so that I was getting jumped, I got back up. I walked in front of the whole entire school. And I felt invincible. See, I was always someone that struggled at school in the traditional way of learning because it didn't feel challenging. We were told to pick up a book, read the book at home. We would come sit in the classroom and the teachers would read the book back to us. And I was always someone that would get my test done early and the teacher couldn't understand why or how because my behavior and my attitude was very negative. I was somebody that would take over the classroom. The teacher told me I didn't know the subject. And then I would, you know, clown the teacher by knowing the subject. So school is challenging in in, in that respect. My attention for the lack of seeing us as individuals or truly not feeling seen or heard. You know, that school created a huge mistake for my family. So talking about family, I forgot to leave out. I'm the middle child. I talked earlier about the extension of family that wasn't there, but I I forgot to mention that I'm the middle child, the son of Jean Poole, that's my mother, the son of Gerald Poole, that's my father, my older brother, Gerald, Gerald John, and my younger brother, Todd. Me and Todd were more of the athletes. Joe was into it, and he never gave up. You know, he always stuck through the seasons, but he found himself in other ways. The one thing that I always say about my older brother is his resilience to the challenges that he faced and watching his two other siblings face challenges. He really maintained his path in trying to find himself in life. Something me and my younger brother eventually got lost in is this need for connection. After the after the injury, another Another account of 
protect and serve with the sheriffs coming to our house. We lost the house. My mother had one child who was bedridden. My father used to work. He used to get up at, you know, five, five in the morning, go drive down to the drive over an hour and a half to work each day, um, an hour and a half there and an hour and a half back. So three hours of driving each day and work eight to nine hour days. So my mother was the main parental figure in our household. And that worked for a long time. You know, I do believe that a mother plays such a vital role in younger children's life, but a father is definitely needed. And me having an older father, a wise, he was always a wise figure. I felt like I always had like this wise grandfather as a father, but I lacked the connection of a strong male role model in that sense. My, I would play ball. I started slowly not seeing them come. There was a lot of, you know, all of us were into something. So there was somebody that was going to get missed out. And I felt personally, like what I had to get over is I felt like I was the one that was kind of just fend for yourself. You'll be all right. You have these friends, you have families. Other families were taking me to my basketball games. I was playing with their kids on their team. So I always had them show up. But when I would look in the when I would look in the stands and not see my parents, this was something that hurt. It really did start to hurt. So I, I, I acted out. I was a kid that acted out a lot. I was the one who acted out to get the attention of my dad. Me and my mom were like oil and water when I was younger. And that's truly because we were the same. What I've realized in my healing process is it's, my aggression came from me being someone that feels the world in such a deep and real way. I can be considered somebody that is empathetic, but in all reality, I'm somebody that's extremely sensitive. I feel things to the core of my soul. When things are wrong, it hurts. I'm somebody that can't hide what I'm going through emotionally. I've always been told I wear my heart on my sleeve, and to me today, that's a badge of honor. Why should it hide? At least you, now you know where my values and passions align. So this is how I've always operated. I'm somebody that really didn't deal with life. And after getting that beating in the way that I got beat up and being able to walk afterwards, I felt invincible. I felt invincible in life. Going through middle school and then getting to high school with all my challenges, it became extremely difficult. My first year of high school, out of the 180-day school year, I was truant 90 days. I already started to pick up marijuana. Um, and smoking weed was, it wasn't that, it wasn't that what most people in addiction call as an aha moment and I found it. But it was something that like kind of really just took the edge off. But taking the edge off didn't give me the drive to be the best that I could have been in the sports. But that also came with not really connecting with my father in that way. We would watch sports, but I can honestly count on one hand how many times my dad was out there. I've never played a game of basketball with him. I, one game of basketball with him. I've never thrown a football with him. We played soccer together because he was my coach. But outside of that, it just felt like I had a present absent father. And not in, I don't say that to be, to discredit what my father 
provided for me. I just say that because this is my experience or how I experienced it. Once again, it wouldn't be until now, as a father of two young children, do I realize the amount of pressure that's upon somebody that is the breadwinner of the family, somebody that is responsible to care and make sure that the legacy that I'm providing for my children looks different. And the thing about the age that I live in, I live in an information age. And the one thing that I really am proud of in my healing process that I committed to in 2015 after getting out of prison was continuing to be a student of life. I will not, I will not stop trying to seek knowledge and obtain knowledge because seeking information has helped me shift these truths that I was so dead set on in my earlier, in my early adolescence, in my early adulthood. So having a father that was present but absent, I told myself at a very young age, I'd never be the same individual as him. I'll never work that way. I won't be gone. I'm going to get it the way that, that, that I, I feel is acceptable to me. So what did I start to do? I started to, to sell dr- drugs. I started to sell, starting with marijuana. I was somebody that was like, look, I'm buying this stuff all the time. Might as well, might as well, you know, at least smoke for free. And then somebody who was an older male at that time in my life, he seen something in me, which... I would find out later was somebody that he could take advantage of. And this is the way that I learned life, transactional. You give to get. If I do this for you, you do this for me. That's not a way to live life. Today I live my life by the means of I do things for others just because it feels good to me. I do things for others with no need for them to show that same type of action towards me. Because in my truth is, the moment that I felt seen and heard in, it, in my healing process, it became easier to find out what meaning, what purpose looked like for me. Because I walked through many years of my life feeling like a ghost in my own household. And what that made me do with this feeling of feeling like a ghost and not having the individual I wanted around me, it I got involved in a lot of criminal behavior. I started getting locked up in my teenage years and it really wouldn't be until my adult life that I was on some form of probation, paperwork or uh, institution, whether that would have been ju- the juvenile justice system the jail system, and eventually prison. High school, my parents knew something was really wrong. Um, They tried to give me a change of scene. So my 10th grade year, I went to a school about 20 minutes away from my household. And the one thing that you can't do, even in a geographical change, is you can't change the person. You can't change the individual and the baggage that you're bringing with. But I thought I could. This was the first time that I seen financial and socioeconomic status in the way that I did. These kids were driving Infinity G35s, $40,000 Jeeps, 
all had dirt bikes and quads. So I just really became a ghost and seeing that this is the what I wanted in my life. This is what I want. I want to be materialistic. I want to have material success. I want to fill this void that was within me with all this stuff that felt good. I was staying away from my house longer. My dad would drop me off in the morning and he'd pick me up on his way home. Some days I'd make it home and some days I wouldn't. What we do in high school is we continue to engage in what it means to engage in high-risk behavior, a lot of drinking, a lot of experimental drug use. I still didn't consider myself an addict at the time because I didn't believe that I was using substances as a means to deal with my problems, but I definitely had some addictive tendencies. There wasn't every day. I wasn't somebody that needed to, you know, get completely shit-faced at school, although there was those days of sneaking in water bottles and orange juice and whatnot, but I wasn't somebody using all the time. The only thing I, the only substance I say I was using consecutively and consistently was weed. I was smoking weed all the time. It didn't matter if it was a good day, bad day, um, to celebrate, to not celebrate. I was definitely somebody who was smoking weed a lot. But the 11th grade year, you know, I just couldn't hack it. I got kicked off the sports team and I was just like, you know what, I'm going to try to go back with the kids that I grew up with. But what that year did, it, it, it created a distance between me and the people that were there for me in the hardest time of my life after my brother's injuries. They all had different friend groups. They were all on the varsity basketball team at the time. And I just couldn't make it. Again, I didn't have the right attitude. And I I didn't realize at that time in my life that my choices and decisions were continuing to perpetuate my suffering. So I, you know, just gave up. I I, I was with this girl at the time whose family was heavily involved in like gang activity, drug use, but they became family. And that's what went on for a long time. I kind of told myself I'm going to get outside my house, spending more time with my girl. And, you know, the, the first time that I got in big trouble was, was at the age of 16. I was hanging out with my older brother for the day. We were just riding around in our old neighborhood and some kids were being disrespectful. My brother was driving this big, ugly, you know, camper van, the one with the one with the ladder and, and the tire in the back, the ladder to the roof. And the ki- some kids were just riding their bikes. They were being normal kids. But I, I something was wrong with me that day. I don't know if I was fighting my girl or what was going on. But I decided to see that as a form of disrespect. And at that time in my life, I only knew how to dealt with disrespect in one way. So we end up parking and I see the kids in the wash area of, of the desert we were living in. And I told my brother to get out. And I went out, walked up to these two kids. I was 16. They were probably 13, 14 years old. Might have even been a little bit younger in all reality. And I told them to give me all their shit. And if they didn't, they was going to get hurt. Not realizing the kid that I just robbed was his family was connected to the sheriffs. So I get a call later that evening from my girl at the time, and she tells me, what'd you do today? 
I'm like, nothing. What are you talking about? She's like, oh, you didn't do nothing, you asshole, but your brother's sitting in jail. I call my dad and my dad's livid. He's like, get your ass home. You better have all their property. I just talked to the sheriffs. They said, if you bring all their property back, they won't arrest you. I already knew it was kind of bullshit, but I knew I had to turn myself in because my brother didn't do anything to end up being locked up. He didn't have any of the same problems I had, and I felt horrible because after his injury, I felt like I was supposed to play the role of the person to protect my siblings. And I had a skewed sense of protection. I did it through being aggressive. I did it through being an asshole and a downright degenerate. So I get there, I, I replaced the, I, I ended up stealing a backpack and a bike, man. The backpack had nothing in it, like an old Walkman. I ended up breaking it because it was just like pretty much garbage. And I went and I picked up the property and I, I got with my dad and we, we ended up going to return the property. And when I got there, I, you know, the, the sheriff didn't keep his word. I was arrested. At that time in my life, uh, a strong arm I was facing second degree strong arm robbery. And the witnesses said I had a weapon, so it was really ugly. At that time in California, the law stated any violent crime, even though can be considered you can be considered a, an adult at the age of 16. My family always came through, even though they didn't have the means to do so. My dad connected with a lawyer that he knew from work who was a criminal defense attorney. They came and showed up for me and they told me, look, we can probably get this down to a plea deal of you taking one strike for second degree strong arm robbery. And he was explaining to me, I'm a kid at the time. He's like, look, the thing you got to know, though, is that this follows you. Your, your, your record will be sealed. But if you ever get into trouble as an adult, like there's no sealing a violent crime. And I'm not thinking, I'm like, all right, let's do it. I'd do anything to get out of this situation. Because even every time I got on paperwork, I still had a healthy respect of not wanting to be in the institutions and just wanted to go home. I wasn't somebody that was like, oh, yeah, this is it for me. It wouldn't be until later that I started to get comfortable with being confined like an animal. And it's sick to say, but I, that's what I knew my life would be because of the choices and decisions I was making. So I get out um, and I just tell my family I'm done. I'm like out of here. I think I was on house arrest at the time, and this was the first time in my life that I was actually suicidal. I ended up taking a bunch of pills and, you know, tried to truly hang myself. And the 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 closet rack broke. My brother came in the room. He called my mom. And again, another experience with the institution. I was put in a mental hospital, um, given... My probation officer was called. They kind of reduced my house arrest sentence, and it was weird. It was just a weird time in my life, man. It was it was extremely hard and difficult to feel like I had any forward movement. I felt lost. 
but I was still in this lifestyle. Like I would show up to my parents' house and put on this persona of what they needed. And then I'd be in the streets just being destructive, still selling weed at the time, still just being a complete degenerate. You know, one thing that I can pride myself in is I wasn't someone that would steal something from other people that was hardworking. But if you was in the lifestyle, you was game. So we were, I was running amok. I used to run around to different states, you know, selling shit, going up to Chico, robbing frat houses. Um, we would sell them work and then we would end up robbing them. Somebody that I knew at the time, he was doing some of the same stuff and he ended up getting like a 12-year sentence for kidnapping because this is the activity that we were getting into. And it's it's wild to just even think about how some of the choices and decisions I was making at that time in my life could have put me in jail for a very, or prison for a very, very long time. I was friends with this kid that I went to that school with in my sophomore year. He was already getting in trouble. He just went to jail for the first time. He did like a county lid. He got out. And when he got out, we reconnected. And at this time, the guy that I was selling weed for, he got busted. So I didn't really have a new connect and I was looking for a new connect so my buddy tells me he's like hey just come out bring your money this dude's good and the dude that was selling he was you know this little rich preppy kid that I went to school with but he always had you know money to have product so I was like look that's the new plug so I get up there and I'm I, I, me and my girl get up there and this is I'm already like right right about to be in a Oh, no, I'm an adult already. And I get up to this house, and when I get up to the house, you know, everything's going good the first couple times. But every time we're chilling for a little bit, they walk away and go outside of the room, and they're like, hey, just stay right here. So I stay, but I feel like what's I'm not good enough to know what's going on, and my curiosity wasn't something healthy. It was more like judgment. It wasn't true curiosity. It was judgment that I wasn't fitting in and my my chameleon status didn't didn't that didn't sit right with me so what did I do I ended up just busting the door and when I get in there they all have foil out and they're smoking some uh, foil I'm like what are you guys doing they're like we're smoking opium not knowing opium's heroin right they're smoking heroin so that's my first experience getting high on heroin and that was you know as addicts say is the aha moment, like all this imposter syndrome, all this feeling of feeling lost, I, I was able to numb that and kind of truly feel whole. It's wild that one of my first experiences with drug and the dopamine rush and everything that happened, I got extremely sick, but it wouldn't stop me from going back up there. And the same way that I thought about weed is the same way I thought about heroin. So I ended up starting to cop heroin and it's sad to say that I was the cause of a lot of destruction in my community. It's sad to say that a lot of kids are just, were hooked for a very long time and took a dark path. And whether or not they would have done that on themselves, I do believe that I introduced many young kids around my younger brother's age to drugs and created a hardship for them. Even though they were all in the lifestyle and using and engaging in high-risk behavior, Heroin wasn't a big thing in my community. Nobody knew about it. So that was something that I had to to really deal with throughout like that crossroads. 
long story short, man, like it was just a long time. I, I got pot. My, my, my dad was working out of the country at the time and I was just set up shop in his house. Got my parents' house raided two days before they're supposed to come back from Holland. And that would be the first time I got incarcerated, not remembering that I even had the strike. So I, my first my first time dealing with the, the court system as an adult, they were already trying to double my time up. I got one little like drug court program, but I messed it up and I ended up getting a, a prison sentence of 30, 32 months at 80 percent while while dealing with myself and the constant troubles I had, I was in and out a lot. And I always felt like I was just a jacket. There was never every help. Yeah, I had one drug program, but these are kind of bullshit classes, not intensive support that I I, I needed. Um, hooked on heroin, I just couldn't make it. I was faking the drug tests. I would get prescriptions for the drugs I was using, the the <laughs> the. the the, the judge is like, all right, do you think I'm stupid? I'm like, look, it's a doctor's prescription. What's the law say? I don't think you're anything, but what does the law say? Anyways, you know, I, I, this was the time my parents, they really came through for me. And this would be the first time that the seed of change was planted inside of me. I, um, before my sentencing, my dad contacted this program that became the community that I started my healing process in in Los Angeles called Beit Shuva. And I was like, I don't even know what that means, Dad. It was a Jewish community, a long-term residential facility in, in Los Angeles, um, a Jewish organization. I was like, Dad, I don't, what am I going to do at a Jewish organization? But they wrote a letter for me, and my dad wrote a letter to the judge during my sentencing. And I remember very clearly the judge looked at me and she said, Mr. Poole, if you cared half as much as your father did or these people did you'd probably be all right in life and I just looked at her and kind of laughed it off I went back to the jail system and got in some trouble my story with the jail system was really weird because the girl I was dating at the time her family's all involved in the gang life and me I'm more of a dope boy I'm out there just trying to get it and on the streets I I consider myself you know a black man but while I would go into these institutions they told me I'd be better protected because California is very, the system is very race conscious and not in a positive way. It's you stick with your race. You don't deal with any. There's a lot of racial tension inside of the jails. So I remember having a conversation with the first dude I ever saw we with. He's like, if you ever got locked up, what would you do? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm black. I would run, I would run with the blacks. And he's like, OK, you know. And then when I finally got into the adult system, which again was very racial, when I was in the juvenile system, you're kind of your own individual. If you can handle your business, you handle your business. Yes, you're going to have to deal with the other gangs that you might have beef with. But for the most off, it's like you can be a one man army. This is not the reality when you hit the, the adult system. You will mind somebody, especially in California. You could think you're the hardest motherfucker on the planet, but I promise you, there's always somebody bigger and badder. So when I first hit the institution, I thought that I would really respect who I thought I was. But being so lost and honestly scared, like at 18, 19 years old, going in there and seeing grown ass man, 
like I was I, I didn't have the same the same fearlessness that I did on the streets being able to protect myself the way that I knew how to protect myself. I was already carrying guns. I was, you know, ready to do whatever I needed to do to take care of myself. But hearing the stories of jail and the reality of the people that I knew that were going to jail, they were telling me the hardships that I would face. So right when I hit the system, I got ran up on by, you know, the the Southsiders and they're like, who are you? And it just felt without needing to continue to tell my story, I'm biracial, I'm this, I'm that. It just felt easier to just kind of connect with them. My, my girl's family at the time, you know, had some calls and had some people look after me. And I just created this persona. It was easy to do. And so my my adult, my adult time at going into jails, I would be this, you know, super Southsider and I'd come home back on the streets and I would be just the regular normal Jeremy from the streets, dope boy. You know, I dealt with more blacks, I dealt with more Crips and Bloods when I was on the streets, but because of the girl I was dating at the time while I was in the institution, I became, you know, super Southsider from whoop-de-woo, you know, and that's just not who I am. In all reality, there was a lot of lies, and part of this podcast is being able to share my truth. That's what my healing journey has afforded me, and it's taken a long time. I even want, you know, it's taken a very long time thinking back. So the judge, anyways, tells, gives me an opportunity to my my dad to share this letter she tells me Mr. Poole this that and the other and I end up going to jail a couple of weeks later I get a call back to go to court and I'm tripping I'm sitting in the hole at the time because I got into some shit I needed to take off some steam and I was willing to do what I needed to do to to let people know that I'm down with the cause so I'm sitting in 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 the hole at the time and I get a knock. Hey, pool, uh, court court line. I'm like, uh, court's done. I'm waiting to catch the chain to go to prison. And this would be a, one of those times that I had an opportunity that I would just fail miserably at. I get to court. I end up, you know, getting my shit together and saying, you know, fuck it, let's go check this out. Because my, my celly at the time, he was like, look, if you go, they can't do nothing but reduce your sentence. So I end up going. And when I get there, my family's all there. And I, and I'm realizing, like, how how are you guys all here? Like, how how are you guys, like, what what's going on? And my, my lawyer's not coming to talk to me. Nothing's happening. And finally, I get in front of the judge, and the judge is like, look, I looked over your file and something that your dad wrote, and I want to actually honor the fact that we have never really tried to help you the in the way that I feel you need help. So she was like, look, you have to give up your credit. And by that time, I was fighting my case for a while, and I built a lot of like county jail credits, which is two for one day. So I had maybe nine months to the pad of this prison term. I would probably only did most of it in reception. And I was like, I'm not sure if I can give up this time. She was, she, the judge said, you go 90 days to a program, and then you'll have a three-year tail, which is the joint suspension. So what that means is if I mess up in between those three years that I'm for sure going to get the three years plus any other charges, 
And I had to look at past history. You know, my past history says that I can't I'm I'm not going to change. I'm not going to change, especially going back to this environment. I knew that about myself. But I look back at my mom and that was the first time that surrender happened in my life. And surrender is is something that became so important in my journey is just realizing that I'm not the best person to make my decisions right now. My mind's corrupted. I'm strung out on drugs. I'm 50 pounds underweight at the time. The only time I would get healthy is going into these institutions. Maybe I should try something new. So I, I was like, all right. The, the program at the time, though, they were like, it could be about six months. So I, that's what I, I was tripping. I was on dead time for another six months, and I was mad. I was so mad. Like, I came there with a chip on my shoulder. I remember the day I got picked up. It just felt shell-shocked to be around so many, like, caring people. You know, you walk in the door of this program, and everybody and their mom is, hey, how you doing? What you need? I'm the new guy. You know, I... I I, I, this is not an egotistical statement. People have always told me I'm a good-looking dude. So I like, had the admiration of, like, oh, you're the jail guy. Like, I'm the only person of color in that program besides one of the staff members that I was working with at the time. So, you know, I was a, a sore thumb sticking out. So I had a lot of attention. It felt extremely weird, you know. At this time, the woman I was dating for maybe 10 years, uh, close to a decade, we were just had a lot of difficulties because of my choices. I couldn't get right for her, and, and I honor the fact that I let this person down in a lot of ways, but our relationship became extremely toxic. And But she was always the reason that I would, you know, show back up. My Right before that, this jail sentence... I, I flew out of the country trying to get my shit together. And what I said earlier about a geographical, no matter what, even with the geographical change, you're still carrying the same baggage if you're not willing to change it. I didn't have a level of ownership. So I went to Holland, supposed to be out there for the summer. And two weeks later, you know, I found a way back to America. I told my dad, I got to go back. And he was like, nah, you ain't going back. I was like, I'm going back. He's like, I'm not paying for it. I was like, don't trip. <laughs> I'll figure it out. And, you know, being the resourceful me, I figured it out. You know, there was people waiting for me back when I landed. Came to the same lifestyle, you know, not somebody that worked. I worked for a couple months, get a check, and then go back to the streets. Just, I was, I'd rather sell dope, you know, and I felt like I would, took care of everyone. And I felt a responsibility to this, like, darkness that I had a connection with. So I went to the program and the first 89 days was easy. At that 90th day, I was at a crossroads. I was like, what do I do? I want to go back home. And knowing home was a broken environment. I had a team that worked with me. It was weird. They worked in this team, like a spiritual counselor, which was the weirdest shit ever to me. Like, what is a spiritual counselor? But now coming to know spirituality is the values that we define our lives by, the principles that we're going to operate and live our lives. So there were, this is where I learned forgiveness in these sessions. But I didn't have it then. You know, the first time I ever went to a program, it was just a seed planting. I didn't have the maturity to nurture and care and realize that a healing process is truly a never attainable goal that we get to show up to each day if you're truly in a place of owning what it, it takes to heal. See, healing means that I'm, I, I have to continue to work at, and I get to continue to work at my life. So I stayed another 
four months after the 90 days and right before my birthday, I went back home and within a month, you know, I was looking at 20 years in prison. I went back to doing the same things that I was doing. I started selling dope again. Uh, the house got raided and during the raid, me and the cops got into altercation. During that altercation, like they, they, they really beat my ass and put tips on me. I ended up in the hospital. Um, they falsified some documentation. I got caught on sales, but I had money on my books. They didn't put all the, the money I got caught with on as evidence. So during during um, court, I ran a pitches motions on, on them, and they found out there was unbecoming, unbecoming um, activities of officer officer falsifying police documents and the DA wasn't willing to take it all the way he came and was like look you like you got caught on the sales case which I knew I got caught red handed I told him slide me low term with no, none of my priors and let's let's go back so I went back you know and this last prison term that I that I went in 2000 from 2011 to 2015 was one of the hardest prison terms that I've done and the realization of this is not what I want for my life. Like now I've seen a new way of life. I didn't believe that there was change possible, but I was looking at people change right in front of me. At that program, they gave me opportunities that I never had before. Being the person I was, I didn't. I always thought it was transactional. And what I realized, like there was a true sense of seeing me as the human being, not my behaviors. Even though I'm a firm believer that every action tells the story of who we are. But healing is a time machine because nobody today in my life knows me as a drug addict. Nobody today in my life knows me as a dope boy. Nobody today in my life knows me as a criminal. Nobody today in my life knows me as somebody's struggle. So I was able to rewrite how people understand me. And that just came from showing up differently, taking ownership, taking a level of accountability. And that's what healing is to me. It starts changes and hard. Change is hard when it's forced upon you. The day that you're ready to change and the day that you continue to make take Countless action towards a new direction, which is not easy. See, we're either pushed or pulled at all times. Most of us are pushed into change. Somebody's pushing you to do the things that you that are can better your life. Eventually, we get pulled in a direction of change, and that force is way easier to be applied in that direction of healing. And that's what I realized. It was a hard. It was a hard journey. So, 2015, I come home during my prison term. I ended up getting my knee blown out and a race riot and struggling with all that because I'm not a racist individual, but like what I'm being taught or what I'm having to do to be this chameleon in this situation and always putting my, my foot in my mouth by trying to be something bigger than myself. I, I, I got myself in a lot of shit, you know? I would, did maybe six months at a fire camp then would, did the rest of my time on a three yard and that during that fire camp, I was able to make almost $80,000 in prison. And it's wild to believe that coming home did nothing because the people that I was trusting, I couldn't be trusted. And realizing that we're all survivors, that's what healing is to me. But like, there's going to be a moment that surviving needs to turn into something more. Surviving for me had to turn into something more. And that's what healing truly is. That's what a recovery process is. It's Healing for me became the way to get out of this scarcity mindset, this way to find, see that abundance is all around me for no other reason than 
then it just is, right? We believe that the more for more for someone else means less for me, and that's just not true. I was able to take those liabilities and turn them into an asset when I changed the way that I'm that I value these things, when I changed the metric system. See, I own the scale of my life. I own the pen to the story of my pages. But I had to put in context that each in character in my story is writing their own. And until I did that, life was difficult. But when I did that in 2015, I haven't looked back. I have not looked back. So the first five years of being out of prison, I worked as a drug and alcohol counselor. Because what, what, what was shown to me inside of the program was like I had an ability to connect with human beings in a real way. I had an ability to see the person the same way that the individuals started to see and nurture that seed, of tr- that, that seed of change into a tree that evolved into the man I am today. And it was not, a, it was not an easy process, but I really understand healing in four ways. Mind, body, soul, and the relationships that I carry. I can go anywhere in the world with the person I am today and be okay because I know I'm carrying the values that are important to me. And that was done a couple years into my healing process. The way I was able to understand my values was by creating a personal mission statement. My personal mission statement started like this. And it happened from reading a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. In that book, it talks about keeping the end in mind. And then there's a visualization exercise to write your personal mission statement. And it really asks you, what did you want your story to be told? I talked about that legacy early that was given to us. I know I'm leaving a legacy for my children. What do I want that legacy to be? How do I want a friend, a coworker, a place I was a volunteer to, and a family member to talk about me when I'm gone? So it asks you to visualize a memorial service where people are going to speak the words of your life. See, I've been to a lot of funerals for tragedy, and it's a hard reality to sit there and realize that most things said about people in tragedy is they were such a good person, but, and that but destroyed me. I had this realization while I was in prison that my father was, he had, he had some health issues. And my realization at that time was that my legacy with my father was I was the only one of his children that struggled with criminality, that struggled with addiction, that created a lot of tension and friction inside of this family that was done by my own choices. That, that pushing force that pushed me into change was a realization that I, to my family, all I am is suffering. So my change and my healing process came when I realized I wanted to be more than that. But the the driving force that pulls me today is my personal mission statement. With integrity, love, and compassion, I'll be an instrument of change in my life and the life of those struggling. I'll continue to be someone the world needs by being the best version of myself daily to help inspire others to be the best versions of themselves. Anytime I come up to life events, anytime I have big questions that need to be answered, I repeat this personal mission statement. The way that I was able to really engage with healing was by sitting in forms of self-reflection. So one of my most prized possessions is the journal that I started in 2015 that I still continue to write in today. I have some eye-opening moments in that journal. I talked about 
writing a book in 2017. I'm a self-published author today. The Mission Possible Life came out of working as a drug and alcohol counselor and realizing that I have a way to connect with people and help them put their lives together. Some of the most meaningful relationships I have today are with those that I've worked with, seeing them strive and connect with life in such a way that was talked about when they were in the middle of their transition and becoming that transitional character of their own stories. See, my story has and deals with pain, trauma, and the choices that continue to perpetuate my suffering. But in all reality, the environment that I was raised in was a house of love. And that was one of the hardest realizations and one of the things that I learned throughout my healing. So today, I'm somebody that gets to show up. Today, I'm somebody that's dependable. Today, I'm a father. I'm a husband. I've learned how to commit to this journey of life and find meaning and purpose. And that comes with daily action. For, for mind, I continue to write. I continue to read. This year, I set out to read 50 books for the year. I'm seven books away from accomplishing that goal. For body, it's about taking care of the vessel that I was destroying for so many years with, through addiction and hair, intravenous heroin use. Started off with smoking and I ended up becoming something that I never thought I would become. So I take care of my body. I'm at the gym four to five days a week, continuously trying to improve something that I destroyed and took advantage of. See that, that knee injury? I have an 80-year-old knee and I'm only 35 years old. I need a complete knee replacement. That Every doctor that I've been to has told me that they're unwilling to do it because I'm going to need another one in 20 years. So I have to deal with the pain of my choices. For soul, that's my mission statement, the values that I get to show up with. I only want people to talk about my legacy in this way. He was a man of love, integrity, and compassion. And when I get these messages from people that I work with to tell me how they experience me, it's in align with my mission statement. And to me, that means that the actions that I'm living, more than the words that I'm saying, is being promoted in the way that I walk the walk, not talk the talk. This has been an amazing experience of not only remembering some of the moments that have shaped me, I truly hope this finds you and helps you understand that you can define who you are. You get to define your own legacy by becoming the author of your own story. I know this is going to find the individuals that need and want to engage in their own healing process, but I would also like to make an invitation to anybody that thinks they have a story to tell. Please feel free to get at me Check me out at my website's themissionpossiblelife.com. You can find me on most social media apps. If you feel like you do have a story to tell, please reach out to me because I would love to be somebody to help you feel seen and heard in your own journey of healing. And one of my things that I like to tell everybody before I sign off of anything, if nobody told you this today, from the bottom of my heart, I sincerely love each and every one of you. I'm wishing you nothing but abundance, overflow, and love in all you do. And this is Jeremy Poole signing off on episode one of the Mission Possible Life podcast.